0: listening to 100 words or less with ray harkins hello there welcome to this podcast talking about independent music we are hanging with the one the only chris evanson he plays in a band called sensefield or i guess maybe say played yeah that's probably appropriate because uh they they no longer are a band but uh he also uh played in reason to believe as well and uh, Chris, I, I mean, I love Sensefield. Sensefield <laughs> was one of my bridge bands. And I know that many of you probably have that similar experience where you started to be like, oh, I can listen to music that doesn't just scream all the time. Like, And these, these guys also come from the same world as I do. And uh, Sensefield was a huge band for me to introduce uh, that whole scene indie rock emo whatever you want to call it and uh yeah i uh, unfortunately john bunch the vocalist of sensefield passed away uh, a few years ago if not man i 2015 i want to say it's it's been a long time but um I, uh I've had Chris kind of always in my mind to be like, oh man, I'd love to pick someone else's brain in Sensfield, And uh, I ran across his wife <laughs> in my uh, travels. And so we were able to connect the dots. And I had Chris on the show. And it was a great discussion because he talked about all of his life growing up within the sort of South Bay punk scene. And uh, I got to pick his brain deeply about their dealings with major labels and just that there was a whole record a whole Sensfield record that got shelved and buried a lot of those songs ended up coming out on the uh, Tonight and Forever LP, but uh, a lot of them didn't. And uh, I got to, you know, ask them a bunch of nerdy questions about that. But you can always email the show. Please do. I always like to hear from you, whether it's guest ideas or just to say hello. 100 at gmail.com. I promise I read all of them and I uh, respond, uh, you know, sometimes a little bit slower than others, but, you know, we, we still get it done. And you can also review the show, um, you know, Apple Podcasts. Just drop some Some sentences on there, maybe drop a few stars on there. I would appreciate that. It just uh, makes the podcast legitimate. Okay. That's, uh, that's, that's what I got for you from a business perspective. And let's talk to Chris. Okay. I, uh, I look forward to bringing you more discussions and you can stick around at the very end of the conversation. I always tease out who is coming up on the show next week. So that's what we got, but here's Chris and, uh, let's do it. You know, here uh, here I am, a uh, Southern California hardcore kid, around the age of you know 16, 17 years old, and uh, you know by that time was very much involved in the um, you know Victory Records, <laughs> straight edge hardcore scene, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know I was a fan of Rev uh, Rev as far as like the stuff that they were putting out, but um, it wasn't until the In Flight compilation. Where I heard building, and it was one of those things where between that song and uh, Texas is the reasons back into the left, where I was like, "Oh, I'm allowed to like stuff that is not just (laughs) screaming." Yeah. (laughs) And it was it was such a uh, you know a a a gap you know a bridge between the two gaps as it were between hardcore and then obviously the melodic music. I am sure that sentiment has been shared with you on numerous occasions, where you know maybe you guys are obviously that particular era was being able to kind of, you know, uh, usher uh, younger kids along to being able to understand that, yes, you can like stuff that doesn't just scream in your face. Um, am I correcting that assumption or no?
1: Yeah, we were, we were an odd fit for revelation. i kind of always were. I mean, we came from, you know, the hardcore, you know, punk world and stuff. Um, but by the time, and we were kind of reticent to kind of jump back into kind of, that association again, you know, after reason to believe and, you know, like that positive hardcore days, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, We kind of tried to steer clear of it, but then it just was, you know, it's like we didn't, the audience found us, you know, it's one of those things. Um, And it just seemed like, well, those, these are the people that end up kind of liking you. So it's like, you know, why would we not embrace that? we just always figured, you know, the people that like hardcore would just like, would be like, yuck. You know, what is this? You know, it's like soft, wimpy music. And, um, you know, but that, but that's kind of how it happened. Like with us, with Revelation, I think that as legend goes, it was some of the guys in like the Rev warehouse that were liking our first little self-released CD and turned Jordan onto it. And that's how we ended up on Revelation. Um, yeah, but it was always an odd fit, and, you know, we were, in, we were always paired with hardcore bands and stuff, like, for the longest time, and that was always kind of an odd experience, too, because, you know, um, that's when people started calling us emo, and not in a positive way, but, like, emo is, and they're, like, wimpy and and stuff, and, and uh, <laughs> you know... Right, as a we're pejorative. Hardcore, and, and, like, oh, that's that emo shit, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, and it wasn't until years later that that stuff kind of became like hip, and you know, those kids were been into that stuff. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, I mean, and I think it, it. I mean, contextually, it makes sense, obviously, why you guys would be pulling from that, because not only was that the vibe of the mid to the late nineties, where bands just played with each other, because that's what they did, and that was the scene they came up in. But yeah. I think it was. I, I, I do think that. Uh, you know Sensfield definitely was a band like i said to be able to hopefully open kids heads up a little bit more to the understanding that like yes like this is okay to like melodic music <laughs> like tr- trust yeah. us like we're we're okay
1: yeah no definitely cuz that's like john bunch and i both you know we both love hardcore music but the hardcore music we liked was scream like early scream and 7 seconds and stuff that had you know had a little bit of like a tiny bit of melody thrown in there with like the you know super fast rhythms and whatnot. You know, and that's kind of yeah, that's where we ended up. But um yeah, it's cool. I mean I don't know, it's good. It, it all looks awesome. you know
0: yeah, and it, it's it, and it's one of those things where because of the historical context in which, you know, the scenes you guys grew up in, like, even though stylistically, you know, you might not have stacked up to uh, a lot of the bands on the, you know, Revelation roster, you still, at the core of it, were, you know, punk and hardcore kids, and so it's not like you could really argue the fact that, like, oh, Sensfield doesn't belong on this. It's like, well, no, you, you do, because, like, <laughs> that's the scene they played in. Yeah,
1: and it, it makes sense. I mean, I liked... Hardcore music, and then I liked what we did. So why wouldn't some other people also be able to appreciate kind of both sides? You know,
0: sure, sure. I
1: guess you don't give the audience, you know, kind of give them the benefit of doubt. You know, um, mm-hmm.
0: yeah, yeah. And, and I think, uh, yeah, and, and plus, like I, you know, like I was saying, I, I think that that particular era was, you know, such a, a shift in regards to the way that you know people viewed what independent record labels were where it's like you could paint more outside the lines and release stuff that isn't typical of the catalog of the you know particular record label and people yeah. would be like, oh okay, like beta minus mechanic. I don't know if I can do that, but like you know sensefield's pretty cool <laughs> you know
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah we were when we started, I mean we, we were doing both reasonably then sensefield kind of concurrently for a little while and still playing shows is reason to believe. And, um, you know, once we started doing like the Sensfield thing, which was really just the c- most current reason to believe lineup plus one person. And, um, you know, we were, we kind of were out in the wilderness there for a while. Like we just kind of were floundering around there doing our own thing kind of with no, you know, no scene to kind of support it. And, uh, You know, I don't know. I don't even know where I was going with this. But it was like we didn't I guess my point is we didn't even know what we were doing or what there was no rationale behind it. There was no let's do this because this is cool or this is popular. It was just like, you know, we just explored new things and just, you know, kinda hoped there would be somebody there that would wanna hear it, you know?
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. I totally get that. And especially when you're working with a label that has a track record for um, you know being reputable and not like you know predatory and screwing people over. It's like, oh no, rep like, you know, Rev's got a good rep, so this is cool.
1: Yeah, Jordan was always is always very supportive and very, you know, he was a fan and um, you know, we had a good good relationship with him and all the other people at Revelation. They were all cool. You know, very supportive, yeah. he always came to the shows and stuff like that. And that's one of those things that fans usually appreciate is when the label actually like comes and sees them play and you know like right. actually gives you shit so you know
0: yeah instead of just yeah. viewing you as a commodity it's like oh wow this person actually likes our music like I mean we good.
1: were we were on other labels later you know that you know like the last label we were on, um when we had like Save Yourself on, like those people at that label they never came to see us They didn't, you know. Um such a different experience. Even people at Warner Bros, when we were on Warner Brothers for a while, they were supportive and always came to see us and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll pull some of those threads a little bit later, but I wanted to focus mm-hmm. on you. Where, um, you know, I know you were born and raised in the LA area. Where, uh, where in particular were you? Uh, kind of I, come up.
1: I grew up in the South Bay area and actually in Palos Verdes. Okay. Know if you are you are you a Southern California native?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I live in Newport Beach, but I've moved around to all, uh, you know, in the uh, Orange County area. So, but yeah, Rancho Palos Verdes and all that. Yeah, actually. yeah,
1: which was an odd place to, to grow up when you are into when you got into punk rock, because it was like maybe half a dozen people into that music up there. It was pretty isolated, but um, it was also kind of fun. I mean, it was kind of a bubble, but a uh, very, you know, insular bubble. I mean, like you're, you, you grew up in Orange County, so there's punk rock all around you down there, but... The closest for us was or like I mean, autobands, I mean there were bands from the South Bay, obviously Black Flag and Circle Jerks and Minutemen and all these other like San Pedro and Redondo Beach bands. But um, you know, we had to travel to actually go see a show and whatnot.
0: Yeah. Well, it's like I think for most people that you know, you describe what, whether it's Malibu or Rancho Palos Verdes, like these things are so, so geographically removed where it's like, yeah, there's only one way in and one way out, or you drive yeah. over the mountains and it's like, that just doesn't, you know, uh, to your point that does isolate you from, you know, a lot of what's happening around you, even though you live in Southern California, it's like, well, you know, I got to drive at least half an hour in order to like get anywhere. And when you don't drive, that's not easy.
1: Yeah, no, it's tough when you're a kid. I mean, cause I started going to punk shows when I was 14 and, um you know, you had to rely on an older kid or somebody to to take you to the show, so he you know um but I mean, it's also kind of what made it exciting, you know going to see stuff like that back when it was like dangerous and um you know yeah, very completely different from you know your reality which was safe and you know very vanilla and uh
0: suburban yeah yeah incredibly
1: <laughs> suburban yeah.
0: Sure. Uh and I know you have uh older brothers and sisters, right? Like where do you uh are you the baby of the bunch? Where do you stand? Yeah, up? I'm the
1: youngest of four. So God. by the time my parents had me, they didn't even like try anymore. So, you know, we'd get away with a lot more than <laughs> right. the older kids, like, you know. I'm always when I think about the shit we did back then, it's it's kind of shocking cuz my parents were just so oblivious to what was going on, you know. We'd, sure. Do yeah, stuff while well, my parents were sleeping in bed I'd be drinking with my friends in the backyard or fucking in the living room or something and they didn't have a clue, you know.
0: So. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I'm sure your your siblings were just like, I can't believe that Chris is just getting away with murder and like, you know, we got punished all day yeah. long as we were starting to do some of this stuff. Yeah. 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 The
1: benefits being the youngest, you know, you know, really it does. at that point.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're last on the scene and people are just like, ah, as long as he's breathing, he's fine.
1: Yeah. <laughs> he's,
0: he's fine. Water yeah. Away. Right. Exactly. Um, and I, I know I, I've just, you know, in doing my nerdy research on you, um, you know, I know that, uh, like freshman year is kind of when you start to get, get interjected within the more, you know, independent minded music scene and stuff like that. But I guess prior to that, what was your, um, you know, like connection point to like, who who did you find yourself being? Were you like a sports kid? Were you into comics? Like, you know, where were you kind of, uh, you know, painting your identity?
1: Um, yeah, that's the thing is I didn't, before that I didn't really have much of an identity. I was kind of a, a, a semi nerdy kid. I wasn't like a full nerd, but I wasn't cool and I wasn't popular. You know, I was just like a shy kid who was into like skateboarding and, um, I didn't even really have like a musical taste Up until, and this is going to definitely age me, but until like 1980-ish, you know, when I discovered the B-52s and Devo and uh, stuff like that. And then from there, so like kind of like that new wave stuff. And, um, you know, back then listening to K-Rock, back when K-Rock actually played, you know, kind of out there music and listening to Rodney Bingenheimer's show and stuff and hearing the adolescence, you know, just want to Anaheim a band, a full working band. And, um, it's like that bad religion and all that other kind of LA punk rock back in the day. And that's, you know, that kind of opened my eyes to that. And, um, in my freshman year. So, I mean, I, I was, I was still listening to like Adam and the ants and V52s when I started listening to like, you know, adolescence and X and things like that. And, um, And then once I was, you know, in in high school, I I met some other kids that were into punk rock and they kind of, you know, were like my mentors and kind of showed me, you know, other bands to listen to and took me to my first show and, and whatnot from there. And then it was all over. I was just totally hooked on that.
0: Band merch is my game and you need to go to rockabilia.com and use the code 100 words because that gets you 10% off your entire order and rockabilia it, it is the the wind beneath my wings the uh, wind in my kite whatever analogy you would like to use but they're the place where you can buy all of your band merch and it's not just like one genre of music they span the entire gamut i just love that about them because you can solve so many problems. It's like, hey, man, my, maybe my dad likes classic rock, and you know my mom likes pop, and my sister likes indie rock. You're able to solve all of those problems and look like an awesome person because you were giving these really nice, specific gifts to them. So please, go onto the website. You'll have so much fun browsing around independently owned business, you know, punk and hardcore kids that are behind this, they're doing the thing and they've been in business for over 30 years. I love this company so much. So again, use the code 100 words that gets you 10% off your order. It'll ship to you fast, quick, and uh, you'll be so happy about it. So rockabilly.com. Go enjoy. And what drew, I mean, I'm going to presume, but I'll obviously let you put it in your own words. uh, You know, what kind of drew you into, you know, those particular, you know, shows and music scenes, you know, was it the, just the, the danger like you were talking about before? Was it just the, because it was so different than everything you'd have witnessed before?
1: Yeah. It was like, I didn't, you know, I have older brothers and sisters and they all had their own music and I didn't have my own music that I could claim as my own. And it wasn't until I started hearing some of those new wave bands that I, thought okay this is this is my thing you know this isn't you know this isn't um led zeppelin and bowie and stuff it's it's you know this is a new thing and um it just i liked the way it sounded and it was exciting and and then i heard that song amoeba by the adolescents which is you know really melodic punk song but they used to play it on k-rock and i was like oh my god this is so cool and you know when i bought that their first record and and I thought it was really scary. Like I was afraid to even listen to the other songs in the record because they seemed so like, you know, like, Oh my God, this, this is like, so outside, you know, my reality, you know, the kids and drinking and drugs and, you know, danger and fighting and all this shit. And it seemed really exciting and, and adult. And then hearing, you know, I had a, a friend of mine, a guy a year ahead of me when I was a freshman and he used to, he was into punk rock and he was a skater and stuff like that. And he would tell me about the shows he was going to. And it just sounded so exciting and dangerous and, and cool. Just, I just wanted to go. And then it was all of those things. It was absolutely terrifying and, um, and surreal when I first started going to punk shows, you know, and it just, um, I think that was the fun, you know, I mean, there's something exciting. I mean, rock and stuff like that should be dangerous and should be kind of scary and that's what makes it thrilling, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so I don't know. I got hooked on that, I guess.
0: Sure. Sure. Well, I, and I think you articulated it well in regards to the, once you feel like it's your own and, you know, once you start to feel like you're part of this weirdo secret society that like,
1: mm-hmm. you know,
0: your parents don't understand, but your siblings are kind of like, well, you know, I, I don't know what Chris is getting into. Like he's taking this farther than we did, but that's fine. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. I, and I was also satisfying like having my older brothers and sisters listen to the music I was listening to and them thinking that it was really weird and not understanding it just kind of made it, better
0: you know yeah of course yeah <laughs> right you're like you you guys understand this you're too you're a nerd or whatever yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um i uh i know that uh, again just because i you know did a little uh, research where you mentioned that you know bad brains was your first uh actual experience as far as a you know show was concerned yeah um did you get there i guess by your um you know your older brothers or sisters taking you there was it like friends like how did you kind of arrive no. at that?
1: that was like a, there, it was like a big show that was coming up and it was, um, the bad brains their I think their first time in LA and this is in like 1982. Um, and they had put out this cassette on war records, which was kind of their iconic release. And, you know, it was all kind of like all the shit that people were talking about. And anyways, it, so it was a big deal. And so these, um, they asked if I wanted to go some other, some of the older kids in high school, um, and, you know, I said, yeah, and, you know, I had to tell my parents I was going to a dance. I remember that's what I told them because I thought they wouldn't let me go if I said I was going to a punk show, you know, in, in a seedy part of Hollywood. I mean, I, you know, at 14, I'm pretty sure they would have said no fucking way. Right. So I went with a carload of other, you know, older kids from high school. Um, and that was... It's funny because it, it it was at this place called the Ukrainian Culture Center.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been I've been to a show. I mean, they do sh- random shows there, like very irregularly. But yeah, yeah.
1: And it's on like uh like East Melrose, like east of the one hundred and one. There's like a record store that I would sometimes go to over there too. Now. Um and later, Sensfield would play at a show, like on like the same block, almost this place called the Macondo, in our early days. And then it ended up being there, but you know, anyway, so that was kind of surreal, but, but that's where it was. And it was much even seedier than, and for a kid from, you know, like an upper middle-class suburb, it was, yeah, you know, it was pretty, pretty, pretty and pretty scary. But, um, so that was my first experience and it was, it was, it was crazy. And even for, as you know, I went to many shows after that, but that was still like one of the craziest ones because, Going there, standing in line, there was a huge line of people outside to see the Bad Brains because it was like a big show. And, you know, like across the street from where we were standing in line, there was a car that was just on fire, like ablaze. You know, there were cops, you know, kind of surveying the line, harassing all the punk rock kids waiting to get in. And, um, you know, it took forever to get in. We finally got in and um, I slammed for the first time, and uh, promptly got knocked out while, you know, while slam dancing, and I took a shoulder to the, or, I mean, elbow to the, to the ear, the right side of my head, knocked me out cold, um, and then from, after that, I was in kind of, like, a daze for, like, probably the next hour or so after being knocked unconscious, and so it became even weirder, you know, you're like, I don't know if you've ever been you know fainted or been knocked unconscious but you're kind of like are pretty disoriented after that and then i'm disoriented and at a punk rock show for the first time surrounded by kids that are like a foot taller than me and leather jackets and shit like that and it was just terrifying and then and then to boot the riot police stormed the venue and um tried to shut it down you know like guys in full you know, riot gear and shields and the whole, you know, nine yards, um, eventually allowed it to go on. But like, that was just like an added layer of just craziness to this already bizarre experience. And, uh, but it was awesome. I mean, at the same time, it was, it was just so cool. The music was great. And, you know, I was just totally hooked after that.
0: Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. When you have all of these experiences at one show, you know, in your early show going life, like Yeah, pretty much
1: the entire every weird thing that could happen at a show happened at that very first show. Like,
0: (laughs) right? It's all it's kind of all uh, all downhill from there. You're just like, yeah, it was like, wow, that was
1: that was kind of it. That was the ultimate right there.
0: Right? Yeah, you you peaked early, Chris. Yeah, I did (laughs) right out of the gate. Um, and so as you started to, you know, get more into this subculture and, you know, kind of find your own lane within the, the music that you were getting into, you know, how, I mean, I know you said your parents were very permissive and like you said, they were allowing you to do a lot of things that they would not have, that they would have punished your uh, siblings <clears throat> severely for. Um, were they concerned about the sort of music and weird stuff that you were bringing in the house?
1: Yeah, they, they, they definitely were. My parents are like, were are super conservative and, um, Pretty square, as it turns out. Um, and it's not like they were permissive. It was, so, it was more that they just weren't paying attention because they both worked and they ran their own business. And so they were just consumed with that. And so they didn't even like know what was going on half the time. You know, like, I didn't get away with doing all the weird shit to my hair that I wanted to at the time. <laughs> Which, when you're that age, sure. it seems super important. So fuck, why can't I get a
0: mohawk? Yeah.
1: <laughs> right. Right. Yeah.
0: Why can't why can't I dye this blonde? Yeah.
1: yeah. Right. I tried all that stuff. It all looked terrible, but I tried I tried it all, but it would always catch a lot of shit when I did. Um so yeah, yeah, no, they, they 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 were cool about it because they were supportive in a way, but they didn't like it. And I know they were probably embarrassed by it, you know, when they brought me around their friends and stuff, you know. They got the weird kid. You know, like every parent of a punk rocker, thanks, you know. Yeah. I mean, they took us, to, like, we had to go to, like, parent-child counseling and stuff like that. You know, that was back when punk was, like, seen as a real, you know, kind of threatening and scary thing and something right. that you need to take a kid to like, a psychiatrist for. Oh, but for sure, it yeah. turns out I was a pretty, I mean, I was a pretty mellow kid all in all. And, like, I had friends that were much more trouble and, you know, the whole running away from home and all that shit. We're way more into drugs. I was, you know, I did my share of drinking and stuff, but I was never really involved too much with drugs anything.
0: Sure. Yeah. You didn't go off the rails. Um, did you, uh, did you like care about school? Like what was the kind of, uh, I mean, obviously it sounds like your parents were running a family business was the I- I idea that you were, uh, you know, going to fall into that line of work.
1: Yeah. My dad always wanted somebody to take his business over from him. And there's nobody was interested. So what did he?
0: What, what does yeah. he? Do, or what did he? Or does he? Do? He, he ran like he had like a
1: manuf. He, he made like lawn and garden equipment. He had a company that made like you know like things like weed whackers and things like that. Okay. And he started and um, and ran. And my mom worked you know with him as well. And but he was, you know, it was once I really got into music and started doing it professionally. He was he was always really both of them were very supportive and like pretty cool about it. or kind of into the fact that I was doing that. You know, that's cool. they, they were very into all of us pursuing things and being individuals and
0: whatnot. That's good. Yeah. Let, yeah. let you find your own way, whatever that yeah. meant. Did you uh, care about school? Like, you know, were No, you- I, I
1: couldn't stand school. I mean, I wasn't a total fuck up, but I hated school and I put in the least amount of effort I could um, just to get by. And that's pretty much what I did. So, you know, I mean I just barely graduated. My last year, I think I just ditched certain classes from the very first day and never went back and then was like short all these credits and you know, had to had to go to an adult school at night just in order to graduate. But um yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I just I don't know. I just, I'm just not I was never big on school, never big on studying. I just like oh, I stayed to it.
0: Sure. It's you, 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 uh, you know, you might've been smart, but you didn't apply yourself, Chris. Yeah. I, I was
1: a slacker. <laughs>
0: um, and I know at that time too, like you also started uh, drums or from what I understand your first kind of love before, you know, you, you switch over to guitar. Um, was the, the attraction to drums, just the fact that, you know, it maybe seemed, uh, I guess easier to play cause there were no technical notes from that perspective, or do you just kind of like, Hey, I like the drums. Yeah, I
1: don't know. I, I was kind of drawn to them from the get go, um, and I still, to this day, kind of like drums most of all. Like I, I don't know. I like bands that have great drummers, and like when I work on my own music, I'll work on the drums probably more than I work on um, the rest of it. Uh, so that's what I did for the longest time. I mean, I, I well, not that long. In retrospect, I probably did it for like you know five years, but. Um, you know, had a, a bunch of kind of go nowhere garage punk bands, um, you know, like three or four of those before we started doing reason to Believe, and all of those I played drums and reason to Believe was the first thing where I tried to play guitar, you know? Um, so that was, was that, yeah.
0: was that hard, like, you know, going from drums to guitar, um, you know, that's a pretty big shift. Like, was it, uh, I guess hard for you to kind of pick up or was it just like, well, because we're just playing power chords, like I can, I can figure this out.
1: Yeah. That's how I learned. I just learned how to play like three string power chords, you know, like the real basic ones. And, um, like guy used to practice over at my house and the guitar player would leave his guitar and amp behind. Um, and I would just pick it up and play it when he was, you know, in between practices and and you know slowly but surely got kind of the hang of it and you know, I never took any lessons I mean it was all just just trial and error self-taught kind of stuff but um I started doing that just because I was just always super into music and I was a big record geek and you know spent all my money on records and I just you know wanted to write songs like the records that I liked and so that's how I that's why I picked up the guitars because I wanted to you know, write some songs for the old band that we had. Um, you know, and then we did some of my songs. You know, when I was playing drums in my first band, and you know, know it's funny to hear them now. It's like, oh my god, am I like you? Just don't hear how blatant the influences were. Like how much I just wanted to sound like certain punk bands in the day.
0: Of course, That's yeah. What you- that's what you do. You just do, you, you aim for a target. You're like, all right, I'm going to sound like seven seconds. And then you yeah. listen back and you're like, oh, so that's like a C version of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I want
1: to hear it now. It's sort of, some of that early stuff, especially is pretty embarrassing. It's like, oh my God, it's like, how blatant could I be? It's just, this isn't even very good. Like, I don't know. But it, yeah. You know, same cool at the time.
0: Of course. Well, yeah. And plus, you, you know, you've got no, you, as a kid, you're just shoving a bunch of stuff in your head and you yeah. don't really necessarily can articulate why you're trying to like rip these bands off but you're just like well I, I i like them so why would i not sound like them
1: there's something also like before you know what you're doing that's a good time like there's there's times where I'm like I wish that I didn't learn anything about music theory or, or chord structure or anything like that because it becomes almost like handcuffs you just you know you're liable that when you when you don't know anything you're willing to try anything and put notes together that maybe don't normally go together and, and I think you're more creative and it's once I started learning more about music later it's like I felt like oh I can't do that I'm supposed to do this and it's like ah it's just you know yeah it's a weird thing but there's something to that ignorance you know
0: Oh, for sure. And especially too, like as you're getting into music, when you're younger, you're getting all into all this stuff, devoid of context rather than like, Oh, this band's a part of this scene. And like, you know, this guy sucks because I heard my friend doesn't like him or whatever. You just like bands because of the music they're creating. So yeah. it's, sim- it's very similar to what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, So I, I'm going to presume, did you go to like college? Like what was kind of the, the life path or was it just like, not like, Everything else is, you know, on the side and like, I'm going to pursue this, this music stuff, whatever that means.
1: Yeah. I went to college after high school and put, you know, a minimal amount of effort into it was studying, you know, for like, I mean, I, I was a business major because I didn't, you know, know what else to do. Didn't give a, I didn't care about it at all. Um, was not passionate about it and just kind of floundered around for a few years doing that. And, um, Still, you know, playing music on the side, playing drums, and then, um, kind of when I was still in college, which should have been like the end of my college career, but, um, we started that's kind of when Sensefield started happening, and the kind of the you know, the the end of college for me is when we kind of started playing more, and I think. I don't think it was our first tour, but basically when we started doing that, I just kind of said, screw it. And I just kind of gave up on college and didn't, didn't graduate at that time. I went back later after the band and, you know, finally finished it and graduated.
0: Right. Got a piece of paper. Yeah. But I
1: just, just didn't, I was not passionate about it. I just couldn't care less, honestly, about like business administration and stuff like that. (laughs) Right. um, You know, music was always my first, you know, first love. And so, you know,
0: and that's what I you just, yeah that, that that's what you focused on. Yeah, I
1: did that. I got a you know I got a job driving a truck and moving freight around the city, <laughs> and just that's to like, just that's to like touring. Able, yeah, just to
0: be able to you know
1: afford to play music, and that's kind of where that started.
0: Right, right. Yeah. The um, so I mean, reason to believe was the the first you know for lack of a better term like serious band you know I E putting out records and touring and playing shows and stuff like that. Yeah as you you know as that started to you know like go out there and you know put out records and everything like that and have people that like weren't your immediate group of friends being into it um was there anything that was- uh, i guess surprising for you or was there things that you were just like wow, this is weird i didn't like I didn't think this is what tour meant or any of those things that uh you know you were surprised by as you started to experience it?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was also, I mean, I'd done it for years just playing to friends and maybe if we were lucky playing a party or something like that. So it was just having your music heard by other people in general was totally bizarre and like having people like it and, you know, and when Reason to Believe finally, it was when we made our association with, um, with Nemesis Records and this guy Big Frank who ran Nemesis and he would get us like legitimate shows, not just little, little like you know self-promoted shows. But he got us on like real shows, and that was freaky, you know. Playing, you know, we, we opened for Fugazi a few times. We played with like the Dickies and Scream and all these other bands, and that was just trippy to play like a legit show with like real fucking punk people and and be on the other side watched it from the other side for so long and then being on you know up on stage you know and um, playing super fast and hearing people yell out faster come on play," you know that used to be the mantra at the punk shows is people screaming out faster it's like shit how much faster can we play I mean, a break. I <laughs> right yeah
0: you're like we're already kind of hauling out like we we can't do much more than this
1: <laughs> yeah we're trying our best but um yeah i don't know the whole thing was just yeah, it was, it was it was weird, and you know I credit John Bunch for a lot of it. I mean, he was the guy who always pushed us to break out of you know our you know little world and actually do something, and and to kind of take it somewhere like a real band. You know, he just wanted to be like in a real band that actually did stuff, and you know he made a lot of those connections, and um, you know,
0: sure, so. push it. Out. Well, yeah, that that's the singer's job, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, he's the networker. He was the guy that
1: was friends with everybody and yep, yeah.
0: So, right. And so that, yeah, that that's obviously how you were able to get out there. Um, did you, in reflecting on your touring experience, not only with reason to believe, but senses sense field, I don't know. I was about to say sense fail clearly two different bands, <laughs> uh, but how did, how did your relationship with, with touring go? Cause like I'm going to, you know, just in whatever observing you from a distance, like, you know, you're a pretty quiet reserved dude and definitely not like the, you know, uh, guy that's, uh, you know, sucking up all the oxygen out of the room, being like, I'm a party animal, crazy guy. Um, and so touring can be difficult for people that, you know, don't have that maybe obvious extrovert nature. Uh, was it, was touring, did it come naturally to you or was it difficult to kind of get into that groove?
1: I I really enjoyed it. And you're right. I mean, I am still am. I'm, I'm definitely an introvert and I'm, you know, not the social butterfly or the, but um I really liked it. I mean, cause touring, like our very first tour was we did one tour with reasonably and we supported this band instead for half of the tour and, and uniform choice for the other half of the tour. And, um, both bands had, you know, actual followings and we were just some kiddly little band who had one little seven inch out and nobody had ever heard of us. And, um, so it was like an adventure, you know, it was totally, we, drove like a truck with a U-Haul trailer. And, you know, you've got to explore the country and, and, um, make no money and sleep on people's floors. And, and, um, I enjoyed that, that aspect of it, you know, like the, just kind of getting out there and and exploring and and just kind of, you know, who knows what's going to happen. And, um, so I kind of liked that kind of early touring days and, um, playing and stuff could be a grind, but but all the stuff that went along with it, I always found it really fun. It was fun to be out there with your friends. and um, But I always, for the most part, always enjoyed it. Um, you know, the camaraderie, you know, the group, you know, people, you know, enjoy being around and whatnot. Um, you know, a couple of beers too, and I open up and I get pretty
0: yeah. <laughs> sure. Get pretty right. talkative. <laughs> sure the uh, the the pirate like nature of your uh, tour van as you're traveling around the country.
1: Yeah, it was a lot more fun. The times that we did like a bus tour, like that was less fun to me. You know, like way too confined and whatnot. Being like in a van and stuff that was that was fun. I mean, you know, I did a lot of the driving. I don't know, I enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. The um and. Uh, I'm going to fast forward a little bit, but, you know, in regards to, you know, Sensefield, when you guys started to, you know, pick up uh, business implications and, you know, all these things where it's like, wow, we're getting paid, you know, a couple hundred bucks for a show. And like once that, that aspect of it started to become, you know, the business started to infiltrate the band. Uh, did you feel, I guess, comfortable? I mean, obviously you felt comfortable with it because you guys went along with it, but, you know, did you enjoy that aspect or was that like, I want to stay as far removed from it as possible?
1: I, I kind of dealt with some of that kind of as just as a necessity because nobody else would, you know? So a lot of times I ended up as kind of a de facto head of the band. And I mean, for lack of a better word, not like I was really the head of the band, but because the band dad. Yeah. Because I was had kind of, I was, the, you know, yeah, I, I wasn't, some of the other guys were just pure artists pure Just, you know, they just couldn't even be, couldn't even deal with stuff like that. And, and like kind of do a little bit of both. And so, yeah, they used to call me the captain. That was my name uh, on tour.
0: <laughs> That's, and, so, and, when they love were, that.
1: and when they were pissed at me, they'd call me the crapton. um, <laughs> If I was getting grumpy or something. But, uh, okay. So, (laughs) I, so I, you know, I had to end up kind of, yeah, taking some responsibility. Um, and I was fine, but, you know, sometimes it's, it's more fun just to be the kind of guy that gets taken care of, doesn't have to deal with anything. But, you know, because nobody else would, I did. So, you know.
0: Yeah. No, it, it, and sometimes it's one of those things where, if a person who isn't, you know, even remotely equipped to handling the business decisions as the kind of conduit between, you know, record label and the band or whatever, you know, that's when things get really uncomfortable because the person's like, I don't even want to be doing this. Like why, just because I'm the singer or whatever, not not saying John was saying that, but like, you know, it does get, uh, there, there's a lot of friction involved with that.
1: Yeah. John and I definitely assumed that role, especially when we started, you know, like when we, did actual records like with revelation and then like later labels and stuff. And and you know, we both enjoyed that. I mean, I don't know, we, we typically enjoyed our relationships with labels, you know, for the most part. And, um, you know, it was, uh, yeah, I, I didn't feel uncomfortable definitely doing that. It was, it was totally, it was totally cool with me. Some of the other guys didn't want anything to do with it. Um, but John and I both kind of, jumped in there and kind of assumes that role.
0: Yeah, that's cool. Um, and, you know, as I'm going to presume that it was probably, you know, I, I guess after, um, you know, the the second LP came out is when, you know, the, I guess the major label attention and all that stuff started to kind of trickle down to you guys. Um, and how, you know, how, how did you start navigating that world of like, oh, wow, now we have to take this band not like have to like, Oh my gosh, it's being thrust upon us that we need to take this more seriously, but just like, okay, you know, maybe we didn't toy around with the idea of like being on a major label. Uh, but like now we have to kind of reckon with that and consider that, uh, walk me through the, you know, the, the thought process as you guys started to, you know, engage with that.
1: Well, a lot of, there were a lot of bands. It was at the time in the mid nineties when a lot of bands in our world were getting looked at and were getting signed. Um, you know, a lot of the bands were getting picked up. Um, Like Jimmy world was already, and they were on Capitol records from the get go and they were already on Capitol records and we were still, you know, not signed to a major. And um, like that band, Sam, I am, Sam, I am had who we played with. Sometimes they had a publishing deal and had gotten like a good advance and stuff. And and the guy who signed them to a, a publishing deal was interested in us as well. And that was kind of like our first kind of foray into like the real kind of like the, you know, the big leagues. He signed us to a publishing deal and um, we weren't managed and he ended up kind of there. We started getting some interest and he acted as kind of like our, you know, sort of manager in a way at that time. And in fielding calls from majors and, and setting up, you know, meetings and stuff like that and um we had just gone on our first european tour and this was like 95 and it was like the most low budget punk rock tour ever i mean like um, yeah it was rough like it was like two months straight playing every night we came back with no money um the promoter took all the the guy who put on the tour took all the money um So when we got back from two hours, suddenly there was there was some interest from from majors, I'm like, okay, this is weird. And um, so this guy who who worked for the publishing company, like I said, started kind of handling this for us. And um, so we had, you know, <clears throat> quite a few labels, you know, at the height of it that were interested, and in, you know, lots of traveling back and forth to New York and elsewhere, and um, you know, mm-hmm. meeting with people and you know, having expensive meals on their dime and and whatnot and abusing their uh,
0: expense accounts, expense
1: accounts to like, you know, to major degrees. Um, It's funny because we had, we were being looked at by Arista records at one time who's not known as a rock label. I mean, they're like Whitney Houston and, and like country artists and stuff like that. And, but the guy who runs Arista is a legend in the music business. Um, not, what can I think of his name? Clive.
0: Clive. Clive Davis. Yeah, Clive
1: Davis. And he was trying to sign us, you know, and this guy is like big time, right? And and we're this, <laughs> this piddly, you know, whatever, post-hardcore, you know, whatever you want to call, they call it now, band. And, you know, he's you know, trying to urge us to sign with him and, and we took, I don't know, a number of meetings with him and, and it's kind of funny. Cause like I was saying, like, you know, John and I were sort of interested in it, but like Rodney, who's our other guitar player was pretty much like falling asleep in meetings with Clive Davis and twiddling his thumbs and like, just could not care less. And, um, you know, just surreal now that we were like, wow, I mean somebody like that stature was actually like actively trying to sign Stensfield you know, and we weren't even like barely interested. And
0: um, right, you're 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 like little children being like, whatever, dude.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know somebody that's like so such a huge figure in the industry. Like, in and uh, yeah, we're like, yeah, nah, no thanks. Um, so we did that for like a few months of just you know meetings and trips and and whatnot, and that was one of those experiences that like there aren't many times in life when you're in the middle of something that's fun and you actually know that it's fun and that you should be paying attention and enjoying it, remembering what it was. But that's one of those few times where I actually knew that what we were going through was never going to happen to me again, probably. And that I should probably keep my eyes open, enjoy it for what it was and just, you know, have fun with it. So like John and I both, I think, thoroughly enjoyed that process, you know, just, I don't know. It was fun for what it was,
0: you know? Sure. Soaking it up. What yeah. was the, uh, what, what, you know, kind of on that same tip, the, like you said, you were you know, having meals on the labels dimes, like all, all of the kind of, you know, quote unquote typical stories that you would hear in regards mm-hmm. to major label courting. Um, what was kind of, uh, maybe not even in the courting side of things, but, you know, usually once you get thrust onto that major label stage, you get to, uh, you know, they they throw you in really weird opportunities where it's like, hey, go play this like children's hospital or whatever, like, you know, weird, weird events and what have you. Is there anything that sticks out like as I kind of articulate that, um, you know, in your head where I was like, wow, I can't believe we got to do this or this really funny thing?
1: Yeah, there was a lot of good stuff in the beginning. When we first actually signed to Warner Brothers, we signed like at the beginning of 96 and all of 96, that was when building came out. It was a lot of touring. You know, we did some warp tour. We toured with like odd, like the the boss tones, which was an odd fit. That was a lot of fun. Um, we toured with Texas, the reason we toured. I think Jimmy World that year. I don't know we did a lot of touring. But once that was all over, and we had kind of a lull, they to keep us busy, they put us out on this thing that they had going on. This series of snowboard competitions. Um, that whoever was putting on these snowboard competitions contacted Warner Brothers and said, "Can you give us a band that'll play these things?" <clears throat> and they were all over like the the Northeast, and um, so you know they volunteered us for that because we didn't we weren't doing anything at the time. And <laughs> those <laughs> those we we did all of one of those out of like I think a series of like I don't know like seven or eight that we were supposed to do, and we did one, and then quid because we did this one and it was like i think it was maybe it was vermont and stowe or somewhere like that and you know we showed up i mean it was a scene straight out of spinal tap we showed up it was up on the hill up on this you know up on the, the mountain at like you know the base whatever you call it, i can't remember anymore but whatever you know like the the, the main lodge for the mountain. Yep. And there was a sign outside that's sign that said pasta dinner and sense field sense field spelled wrong. Um, and we played, you know, we were second billed to pasta dinner and, um, so we had to play up there and it was like after the competition, like, you know, everybody left the mountain after that, it was in some like bar at the lodge. And, um, you know, it was like not well attended and, um, you know, and the people there had to pay us a ton of money because that's what was the deal. And they're like, "Jesus Christ, I can't believe we're paying you this much money, you know, for having played this stupid thing." It was like, "Oh my god!" And, and we we just said we don't want to do any more of these. And we had to wait a week between each one and just sit around for a week, play another one, sit around like on the East Coast for a week, play another wow. one. You know, it was just it was such a stupid idea. And we're like, okay, that we're not doing that again
0: that honestly that's that's perfect like that that is exactly what i i like to hear when i ask that question because it is yeah you just get thrown these random ideas and you're just like sure we'll play a you know a, a ski lodge yeah or a second we, we like want to
1: be yeah, yeah we're team players we'll do this sure it sounds great you know and it's like oh, oh god. god it's just a total like confidence like destroyer you know it's <laughs> you just fuck right. what am i doing is this where we're at like oh my god
0: yeah, I'd rather I'd yeah. rather play a show to two people because we know those two people will be there to see us at least. Yeah, yeah,
1: that <laughs> no, was totally demoralizing.
0: Um, and I guess on that demoralizing tip, <laughs> and not to you know treasure up uh, you know past wounds or anything like that, but I remember like I was working at a record store here in Orange County uh, called mm-hmm. Bionic Records, and I remember getting. I still do have the promo of your Warner brothers record that obviously got shelved and yeah. you know you guys ended up reworking it obviously. But um, that uh, I, I can only imagine that that process was um, like, I, I can't even believe that you guys were able to sort of gather up your um, fortitude to be able to like go on because, you know, usually that's like the pinnacle of a horror story for bands to get their record shelved or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I guess uh, without being, I guess overly dramatic on my part. Uh, like, was it as, I guess, demoralizing as what I would maybe anticipate it to be?
1: Yeah. I mean, hearing that that was about to happen, because first of all, yeah, it was like being, you know, it was like being fired or something. So, right. they we got the news that we'd been dropped and our A&R person had been fired in the same setting. Oh. And, you know, I mean, the, the lesson was first of all, you, don't waste time, you know, to any band out there. Just get your record out, move. Don't sit around because, you know, like time is the enemy, you know. And we were we were taking our sweet time in between when we put building out and when we were, you know, we spent like a year just demoing songs. We spent forever recording the record. And that wasn't all our fault. It was the person that we were working with as a producer was just not, it was like, yeah, I'll fit you in between all my other, you know, better paying jobs. And, and so we were like, it just, the whole process took a couple years, you know, and that's ridiculous. It should have, we should have just, you know, jammed it out quickly, kept moving, but we just sat there and just screwed around for way too long. And in that time, you know, the, the leadership at the label had changed at least once or twice and we dodged lots of bullets and, you know, um, and finally, you know, we just couldn't dodge another bullet. A new guy came in, cleaned house, got rid of a lot of the stuff that they had that, you know, he didn't care about and we were, you know, one of the casualties of that. So yeah, that was a shocker and you know it took a little while to regroup. But um, in those weird moments, you know, you you your kind of instinct says to just you know, not let it affect you Is to pick up and try to keep going. Like as if everything is, is normal. So we went right out on tour pretty soon after that happened. We went out with um, Jimmy world this time as support. You know, the first time we went out with them, we were there, They were supporting us. And that was another one of those weird moments. We were like, huh? Like, you know, how well, things have changed. Um, so you know, they were taking off, and we went out and supported them, and we had a good time, and that was cool. And you know, they were nice guys. And um, but uh, you know, when we got back, we decided let's just you know, because we had kind of been able to set up our own studio in El Segundo with the Warner money. You know, we had like a little place that was all our own that we had like a kind of little studio set up in a control room and the whole nine yards and equipment and whatnot. So we were able to do our own recording. And um, I had just bought a Pro Tools rig um, of my own. And so, you know, we just said, well, screw it. We'll just re-record these songs and try to do something with it. Because what, what What the hell else are we going to do, you know? Right. You know? <laughs> no, I mean, like, seriously, it was just like, I don't even know what what else would we could do other than that, you know?
0: Sure, sure. It's kind of, that's interesting. I never, I guess, thought about it from that uh, side of the coin where it's just like, well, we don't know what to do so we'll just do what we obviously have known to do and that's just like, well, we will just get room and, you know, work on some songs.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, we weren't ready to give up. I mean, we, it was like we had the rug pulled out from under us, you know, just as for a moment when we thought, you know, things were all going to come together and then, to, you know, to get tossed out on our ass and then, um, you know, yeah. So, yeah. So we, for that one, we redid a lot of the songs, but like John didn't have the, he didn't have the energy to just revisit doing the same old shit. So he insisted that he just rewrite the lyrics, rewrite the melodies for certain songs and just kind of reinvent them in his own mind. We added some new ones and, and, um, you know, just just flew by the seat of our pants and just tried to do something.
0: Sure. Like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. The, um, and I'm, I'm guessing too like you know once you guys obviously were able to move past that and you know released tonight and forever and you know that was uh you know arguably probably your i, I guess you know largest selling record i'm guessing it, um,
1: it, yeah um, it was you know by you know mostly on the strength of save yourself which became a single you know we never even had a single before right, and um right you know the guy that red did the radio with that with the label you're we on um you know, felt strongly about that one. We're like, oh, shit, okay. I mean, go for it. And, you know, he actually, you know, got on a lot of stations in the country and it was actually doing really well. Um, in certain markets, it was like a top song. Um, you know, um, it was doing, it was climbing on K-Rock too here. And then um, the label just wasn't able to kind of get the product into the stars to kind of capitalize on whatever momentum there was and it fizzled out eventually, but, um, should have done, you know, it should have or could have done better than it did, I think. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. And I, I mean, I remember in just kind of, (laughs) It, i mean you always feel like this obviously when you know bands from you know your scene or, or whatever have levels of success like you you know you get excited when like the mainstream public is like oh wow you, you get to hear Sensfield now like that's exciting and i just remember it's like you guys popping up on music sound or like movie soundtracks and it was like what like this yeah. is wild um yeah, yeah. but it's, i mean it's cool it's cool because like you said there's ne- there you you're just trying to capitalize on the momentum that is sort of, you know, happening for you guys at the moment. So it's like, you know, it's a, it's all exciting at that point.
1: Yeah. And it's kind of out of your, you know, it's out of your control too. And I mean the label is going to do what they're going to do to sell records. And, but we're into it, you know, you know, yeah. we had song. I mean, it was it, that whole thing. I mean, none of it seemed real, you know, as it's happening and, but it was fun at the same time. And, um, it is neat to hear your song and like something like a TV show or a movie. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, it's you you're like, this is the last place that, <laughs> that I would ever hear my song.
1: Even hearing way. it on the radio was the weirdest, like hearing it on K rock and and stuff like that, you know, cause I've been listening. To, I listened to K rock from when I was like, you know, 12 or 13. And Yeah. Um, so that was definitely surreal. Like hearing a DJ like introduce your song and whatnot.
0: Sure, here, here, here it is on Kevin and Bean in the morning or whatever. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, two last things before I let you go. One of them was the um, you know, I, a, as the band started to you know wind down in regards to you know touring as actively as you guys were doing, and you know, kind of figuring out what those you know next steps were. Um, you know, was that difficult for you to kind of like quote unquote transition into real life? Um, you know, I know that obviously you as a person, like, you know, you're not like, Hey, look at me. I'm Chris from Sensfield. I'm the, you know, ego guy or whatever. But, you know, was it, uh, I guess, was it hard to kind of, you know, go out of being that, you know, unit that you guys were?
1: Yeah, it, 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 it was definitely. I mean, um, like after we decided to stop doing the band, you know, I went back to school and finished my degree and all that, but it is, there's definitely a, um, I mean, your, your identity is being a guy in a band, you know, and there's whatever notoriety that goes along with that, you know, you get used to that, you know, not like you're special, but like being noticed for being a part of something, you know, that makes, you know, that's part of your identity. When that goes away, I mean, that's a, there's an adjustment to that, you know, and you try to hold on to that, not in like a cocky kind of arrogant way, but just, you know, it sounds cheesy, but there's a, there's a feeling of some level of specialness that goes along with being advanced, something that like, you know, strangers are into, you know, Mm -hmm. and then when that goes away, yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely weird. You know, you, you lose that and it, um, it takes a little bit of, you know, an adjustment to going, becoming, you know, just whatever, just average Joe, just, you know, um,
0: well, to, to, be, to be clear, Chris, I did not call you an average show.
1: No, just <laughs> <kidding>. <laughs> so that's a, you know, once I started going to school and I got a job, you know, my first, honestly, like I'd gone my whole life without having like a real job, which is scary. Like I didn't have a real job until I was in my thirties and, um, you know, like a full nine five kind of thing and then doing that. And, and then you're just sure. like, you're just like a peon and it's like, oh God, this is just weird. You know? Um, but everywhere I worked, or have worked, the people have always liked that part of my backstory. You know, um, so oh, sure. you know, I don't want to say you get like special treatment because you don't, but people always, you know, enjoy that.
0: Sure. Well, they're like, whoa, whoa, Chris, you, you played in a band? Like, whoa, that's weird.
1: Yeah, especially <laughs> knowing me because I'm super, I'm reserved and I'm, you know. An introvert and people like you, like you were in a band. How is that even possible? Like, I don't
0: know. Right. Yeah, totally. a couple
1: beers and I'll, and I'll show yeah.
0: you. Yeah, it's it sounds like that's the uh, motto in your life, Chris. Show me a few <laughs> beers and I'll show you.
1: <laughs> Sometimes that's what it took to come out of my shell. Yeah, you know?
0: understood completely. Yeah, uh, um, and, and and wrapping things up. It, Clearly, you still obviously care about music um, and you are, you know, the the punk and hardcore and everything that you have kind of, you know, grown up with is, is still an important part of your life. Um, what, uh, you know, I, I guess what keeps you connected or caring about that? Because, you know, I mean, ostensibly, once you reach a certain age, like you're supposed to, quote unquote, age out of it or just be like, oh, yeah, like, you know yeah, I don't listen to buzzcocks anymore. Cause you know, I'm listening to movie scores or whatever. Um, you know, maybe I'm speaking more about myself, but <laughs> what, uh, you know, what, what keeps you connected personally?
1: Well, yeah, I, I, am embarrassed to say, I don't listen to a lot of newer artists. I mean, there's maybe a handful that I've heard that I liked. Um, um, people like Ty Seagal or, Oh sure. You know, like the, cloud nothings or some bands that i've heard recently that i that i think are cool i listen to a lot of old punk rock i mean when i got when i stopped doing music it was kind of a weird thing because when you when i played music and wrote music i felt other music felt almost like competition to me so i didn't enjoy it as much so not doing it has allowed me to enjoy listening to other bands more and um you know, I just kind of got back into like I was kind of a record geek before, and I'm back to being a bit of a record geek now. I spend way too much money on um, on old punk rock and stuff like that. And you know, with the mask. where are you
0: where, where where do you uh, are, are? you doing? I mean, obviously, you're doing a lot of online shopping because yeah. that's clearly the uh, only option. Where a lot, you, uh, a lot of
1: discogs and, and nice. eBay and um, other other outlets, specialty stuff, but you know expensive punk collectibles and new wave stuff and, and you know that's kind of how I've kept interested um, so I haven't lost that I mean I still I, music is still the thing that I'm most interested in um, you know there's nothing there's nothing better than hearing a, a you know a great song for the first time and you know falling in love with a record so that's still you know kind of, there's nothing that really beats that
0: yeah yeah, it becomes harder
1: and harder the older you get you become jaded but occasionally something comes along and you feel that feeling again you know you just get super excited just listen to something over and over again
0: yeah no that's that's great and i think that that's to me that's the most important part where it's like it's not necessarily that you're keeping up on like oh wow look at this you know new seven inch from this young band down the street or whatever like you know that's cool but as long as you still have that feeling you know when you do hear something new that's like oh yeah like i'm I'm here for it.
1: Yeah. For me, I just went backwards. I went backwards from where I became aware of music and I'm listening to stuff that's slightly a little bit older that I missed. And it's all new to me, but it's, you know, it's not new, but it still sounds current because people are still emulating it to this day.
0: Sure. Right. Yeah. As long as it's new to you, that's all that matters. (laughs) Well, Chris, thank you so much for hanging out, dude. I really honestly appreciate you letting me uh, ping pong around your life like this.
1: Yeah, I appreciate it. It was fun
0: there we go that was chris thank you very much for taking the time out of your schedule because i know you know i sit there on a podcast and get punished about your old bands <laughs> sometimes that might not sound so fun but chris was a great sport and uh, i had a lot of fun conversing with him and also big shout out to his wife monica who is a great human being and uh yeah she's just uh, she's she's a saint and she helped this interview happen uh, after she uh, well, no, not accidentally, you know, I kind of, uh, brought it out of her at one point and then she was like, oh yeah, my husband played in Sensfield," And I was like, uh, okay, he's absolutely going to be a guest on this podcast. So next week we have Mike and I've never said his last name out loud, but Mike Hranica, I think that's how you go. But he, he plays in a band called the Devil Wears Prada. Which, uh, you know, it means a lot of things to a lot of different people. I personally have not been, like, the hugest fan of The Devil Wars Prada. I appreciate what they have done and how they've expanded their uh, musical spectrum. But uh, Mike has always been a really interesting artist. And when I got the opportunity to have him on the show, I did. I took it. And that's what we got for next week. So, Mike from The Devil Wars Prada is on next week. Don't you love the broad base of music that we cover here? <laughs> I do. And that's, uh, you know, that's, that's what makes me happy. So until next week, please be safe, everybody.